These past four weeks of Lent, we've been exploring forgiveness as we approach the cross with the hope of resurrection. And we've met a whole bunch of biblical characters on the way, ones who have expressed forgiveness, offered forgiveness, needed forgiveness, and today is no exception. We're going to drop ourselves straight into Matthew's gospel, into the thick of things, You should know that the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees for 27 chapters now have been trying to trap Jesus, to catch him in blasphemy or heresy, to find some reason to put him on trial. And Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, becomes part of that plot as he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver leading to his arrest. But in all the years that I have read the crucifixion story, whether it came on Palm Passion Sunday or in a Good Friday service, there is a passage that seems to always get left out. And yet it reflects the way our longing for forgiveness and the cost of forgiveness denied is in fact part of God's story. So listen now to the word of God from Matthew 27, verses 1 through 5. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what good is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hung himself. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Amen. How much do you know about Jesus' disciples? I mean, really, what, what do you know? All of us who are uh, clergy have to take a Bible content exam, and I have to be honest with you that if I took it today, I'm not sure I could get all 12 of them by name. So let's think for a minute about what we do know. We know there were 12 of them, not counting the women who were surely along for the journey. We know that some of them were fishermen. We know that Jesus chose and called every one of them. We know that for some period of time, they followed him around Galilee, and they shared more than a few meals with him. It seemed they were always eating. We know that they witnessed Jesus perform miracles and heal the sick. They listened to more than one long sermon. We know that they were Jesus' trusted confidants. They were his friends. 
And we know that on any given day, depending on which gospel you're reading, they were kind of clueless about what Jesus was trying to teach them. So we know a few things about the disciples. But truth be told, we don't actually know that much about them. We get almost none of any of their backstories. To the best of my historical knowledge, none of them wrote a best-selling memoir. Instead, over the years, we've uh, summed up their life in kinds of labels so that we can keep track of them throughout the Gospels. There's Simon called Peter the Zealot, James the Greater, Thomas the Doubter, and Judas the Betrayer. But how often do we do that to our own friends and acquaintances as well? We could spend hours with a close friend only years later to find out that they had been going through something that they never shared. We're pretty good at asking about only certain aspects of our neighbor's lives. We don't want to pry, right? But it means we miss parts of their story. I remember on the fall retreat last year, uh, there's one among you who it turns out is a pretty good piano player. I would have no idea had it not been for my desperation so that you didn't have to listen to me meander and missed notes so that we could worship together. And maybe that's a trivial example, but the reality is that despite our best efforts, we can miss our neighbor's successes and struggles and stories and instead know them based on labels to keep track of each other. Who's that one? She's the goody two-shoes. He's a bad egg. She's a real gossip, you know. That one is a criminal. They're the class clown. He's the basketball star. You can pick him out. He's really tall. But when we place labels around those around us, it can be easy to forget the person in front of us and the story that they bear. It can be easy to miss what's going on in the heart or spirit of your neighbor. And when we hold one another at arm's length, it can also be easy to define someone based on the worst thing they've ever done. And we, the church, are pretty good at defining Judas by the worst thing he's ever done. We hear Judas's name and we immediately think of him as the worst disciple. But there's always more to the story. When we meet Judas today, what we know about him is that he was convinced by the chief priests to betray Jesus. He'd negotiated for nothing more than 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus over. And we could think to ourselves, it's in fact, it's really easy to think to ourselves, how could someone betray a friend, especially when your friend is Jesus? We hear the words Judas Iscariot, and all we think is betrayer. But the reality is we don't know much of Judas's backstory. We don't know how long the chief priests had been looking for a chink in his armor to use him for their purposes. What we do know from today's gospel lesson is that after Judas betrayed Jesus, he felt awful about it. He was carrying around this guilt of betraying his Lord and his friend, and he feels like his back is up against a fence, and he wants to make a wrong thing right. And so he goes looking for forgiveness. 
Did you hear it in the text, this text we never read? When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver, and he said to them, he confessed, I have sinned. I wonder if in that moment, Judas wasn't hoping to find his friend Jesus, the one who he had offered he had watched offer mercy to tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. I wonder if Jesus wasn't hoping that maybe he would find Jesus and the mercy would be for him too. But Jesus had been arrested and was nowhere to be found. So with the weight of the guilt weighing on his heart, he turns to the people he thought could help him, his faith community. He was surely praying that they would be the bearers of grace for him, that they would extend some kind of forgiveness to him, or at least take back the money he'd been given. Preacher Sarah Wiles reflects, Judas came to his spiritual home seeking repentance or mercy or at the very least counsel, and he was dismissed. The spiritual guides were so focused on their own agenda that they couldn't see before them a man in mortal peril. They were so caught up in causing the death of another to satisfy their own sense of righteousness that they couldn't engage with the regret and guilt and shame and despair of one of their own. Okay, and it it can be easy now to try to pivot and say, well, it's the evil chief priest's fault, right? But before we go about labeling and othering them as yet another victim in a story of untold brokenness, we have to pause and confess that none of us are perfect. The church has not been and is still imperfect. The church has been the chief priests who have failed to care for those in need, even in our own midst. Big C Church has ignored abuse, rejected those looking for God's love because of their sexuality or the color of their skin or the money in their wallet. We've chosen at times in our history to love our rules more than our people. We've preferred to be right rather than be agents of reconciliation. So we're not perfect. Not Judas, not the chief priests, not the church, not any one of us. But in this particular story, this time, their lack of grace had grave consequences. Judas felt regret. He repented. He expressed remorse. He tried to make it right by giving back the money, and he was rejected. Can you imagine what pain that must have been? Judas sat there and felt like he was outside the bounds of God's grace and the people who had the opportunity to show him mercy threw the money back in his face. And Judas felt like he was at a dead end. In his mind, there was no way out, no way forward, no hope, and the darkness that overwhelmed him led him to such pain that he died by suicide. And the truth is, that many of our neighbors and friends and loved ones may feel that kind of pain. Whether it's from an action that hurt someone or from trauma that they carried in their bodies for years, from mental illness, or from a misconstrued belief that they are not worthy of the love or grace of God, we all know a Judas. 
We all know someone who believes that they're outside the bounds of God's mercy and that maybe there's nothing more to hope in. And my suspicion is that all of us know someone who felt that pain and darkness to such an extreme that they thought the only way forward was death. Maybe that's one of you. But the gospel good news is that every time our brain or our heart or the world around us lies to us and tells us that there is nowhere to turn, we remember that we worship a God who says there is nothing in life or in death, not rulers or angels or things present or things to come, nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We worship a God who knows death itself and says, even that cannot keep you from my mercy and grace and love. So if you feel like your back is up against a fence, we find in Scripture a God who moves that fence around you to envelop you in a gracious and wide embrace of a Savior who knows pain and says, even that darkness is not darkness to God. The sin in this story is not Judas's suicide. Judas was not without sin. None of us are. His sin was betraying his friend for a pittance of cash. But the chief priests and the elders sinned too. They offered judgment instead of mercy, rejection instead of relationship. They had a chance to reflect the grace that Jesus had been teaching, and they didn't offer it. They had a chance to receive his confession and forgive, and they didn't. And even if that didn't change the outcome for Jesus, it could have for Judas. There was, of course, another way. There is, of course, another way. The story of Judas is written in history now, but stories of betrayal and loss of hope are all around us. And so we, the church, have a choice. When the layers of our lives get peeled back and we see someone in need, someone for whom hope feels lost, we can choose to be like the chief priests or we can choose to be like Jesus. We can choose to respond not with judgment but with grace, not with dismissal but with help, not with rejection but with resources. We have a choice to tell one another again and again, your life is worth it. God loves you always full stop. It may not fix what your friend is carrying, but it might give one in peril renewed hope. And we may never know the depths of one another's stories, but we have a choice to be like the chief priests or Jesus when we see someone in need. We have a choice to cut someone off or to move the fence to include them yet again. And sometimes we don't know what someone is carrying until it's too late, but leading with forgiveness and mercy is the way that we as the church can reflect the forgiveness and mercy and grace of a loving God. There was a, a small church in, the town, in, in a town in southern France And in this church, there was a a young man who had had grown up in the church, had been nurtured by the church, and he also knew a measure of darkness that not everyone around him knew he was dealing with, and he died by suicide. 
And it was a rule in that parish that if you died by suicide, you could not be buried in the church cemetery. And so the parents went to see the priest to plan the funeral and burial, and they were so heartbroken. And the priest did everything he could to say, your son is in the loving arms of a gracious God. But there's this, this rule. There's nothing I can do about it. My hands are tied. And so the community gathered for his service, and they went to his burial, and they buried him just on the other side of the church cemetery fence. And they all went home, but nothing felt good, and nothing felt right. And that night, the priest was up in the manse and was just tossing and turning. He couldn't get himself to sleep. And he looked out the window and noticed this gentle rain that was falling, that was softening the earth. And he put on his shoes and he went out, not with his prayer book, not with his Bible, but with a pickaxe and a shovel. And as the rain fell, he dug and he banged and he dug and he banged until he had loosened that fence and moved the fence itself so that that young man's grave was inside. We have a choice. We have a choice to be like the chief priests or like that French priest. The French priest chose to ignore the rules of the cemetery in favor of the rule of love. And by moving that fence, he proclaimed the greatest news that any of us have to share with the world, that there is nothing in life or in death, that can separate you or me or any of us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we await Easter, but that truth is true every day. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>